Hello, and welcome to the Committed Collective Podcast. This podcast is a dialogue between Adam Stone, Byron Hazley, and Steve Kerwin, often joined by informative guests through all walks of life. It's very informal, but very informative, and we're never quite sure where the conversation will lead us as we're talking about racial and socioeconomic inequality in our nation. Due to our national footprint, we're connecting through Zoom, so keep that in mind when you hear the audio. If you'd like to submit a question or topic, please do so by emailing us at info at thecommittedcollective.org on our Facebook page or connecting with us on Instagram at the underscore committed collective. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Committed Collective podcast, episode 25. Um, our special guest today is Stephanie Krause, and today's topic is going to be women in the law. So our fun fact for this week's podcast, good old California, which is where Stephanie and I currently live, women's history actually began here as a local celebration in Santa Rosa, California. The Education Task Force of the Sonoma County Commission on the Status of Women planned and executed a Women's History Week celebration in 1978. The organizers selected the week of March 8th to correspond with International Women's Day. The movement spread across the country as other communities initiated their own Women's History Week celebrations the following year. Um, And then in 1980, I just have a quote from Jimmy Carter. his message as he designated National Women's History Week. So kind of what initially started as like Women's Day turned into Women's Week, and now it's a whole month to celebrate women. Um, So Jimmy Carter said, from the first settlers who came to our shores, from the first American Indian families who befriended them, men and women have worked together to build this nation. Too often the women were unsung and sometimes their contributions went unnoticed. But the achievements, leadership, courage, strength, and love of the women who built America was as vital as that of the men whose names we know so well. Um, And that was in 1980 when he designated Women's Week from March 2nd to the 8th. And now we celebrate the whole month. So this year it's March 1st until March 31st, 2021. Not enough time. Really, it needs to be the whole year (laughs) because, I mean, we're awesome. But, you know, that's just my two cents. So. (laughs) Well, so happy to be here with you ladies again. As Kate said, we have our amazing guest today, Ms. Stephanie Kraus, Esquire. So happy to have you, Stephanie. Thank you so much for being here with us. So can you tell us a little little about yourself? We understand you grew up in Michigan. Yeah, thank you all so much for having me. Um, I'm really excited to be here. And yeah, so I grew up in Michigan do not miss the weather. I think it's like 40 degrees still at my parents' house. Um, but I kind of knew I wanted to do entertainment and visited California when I was really young, like seven years old and kind of just fell in love with it and was very just dead set on ending up in California. Um, the law school portion actually came a little later for me when I was younger, I wanted to maybe produce or work at a studio. And then when I came out, I went to New York for undergrad and then moved to Los Angeles shortly after graduating. And I've lived in LA for 11 years. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Since you wanted to end up in California, what made you kind of move up to New York for undergrad? Oh yeah. Well, that's funny. Cause I originally had told everyone, you know, it's funny growing up in Michigan. A lot of times people would be like, where are you going to college, Michigan or Michigan state? And like, there's really two options. <laughs> Um, and I, I remember I would say like, no, 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 I'm going to California. Like I really want to work in entertainment. And then when I started looking at schools, I visited New York, um, and I ended up going to NYU just because I had, I don't know, a really great experience during orientation. And it was also closer to Michigan. So I think that was, you know, kind of a good way to ease in being so far from home, but not completely off the, off the, across the country. Well, NYU is a great school. Um, so kind of, you sounds like you've lived in New York, which is, you know, major city, you live in LA now, um, kind of leaving Michigan. And you said it was kind of like a small little hub because you were supposed to technically only go to one of two schools. Um, you know, kind of yeah. how was your outside, um, experience outside of Michigan? How did that kind of just open up your eyes to just the world as a whole? What'd you learn? Well, it, it was interesting because I really thought that I wanted to, you know, like not have a traditional kind of big 10 college experience. I thought I wanted to just 
totally go off the the beaten path and be surrounded by people who, you know, wanted to work in entertainment um, and also just, you know, different kind of a little bit more diversity than what I had grown up with. in yeah, like you said, a very small um, kind of sheltered Midwestern town. Um, but when I got to New York, I, I, it was a lot of culture shock. Um, and I actually had kind of a rough transition. Um, I felt like I kind of struggled to, to meet people that I really connected with. Um, and yeah, I'd say the first year was really hard. Um, and I, I so much so I actually almost transferred back to, um, Mm. Michigan or I was looking at other schools and I just, yeah, I feel like I actually learned that I am not an East coaster. I realized I hadn't even met anyone from the East coast prior to, um, going there for college. So what did, what I ultimately ended up staying is the education and, I, again, like the, all of the professors and the classes I could take were just, I was so, so in love with that, which, you know, makes, makes me sound like a total nerd. Um, but in New York, it did grow on me a little bit, but it's still nothing kind of compared to California for me. So I was in my, I think junior and senior year, I did an internship in Los Angeles because after that I was like, okay, we got to, we gotta actually try to like live somewhere before we go, you know, go on vacation somewhere. It was a good lesson, like going to visit someplace, you know, having this like, you know, somebody show you around and show you all like these great things. Is not necessarily the experience you'll get uh, when you live somewhere? So I did um, an internship, I think when I was 20 out in Los Angeles. And then I, I was just like, oh yeah, yep. Still love it. This is, this is where I want to end up. So moved here shortly after. And so did you apply to law school when you were coming out or did you know you wanted to go to law school at that point? I had started thinking about it, but the law school, yeah, portion definitely came later in undergrad. I took some, some entertainment and business law courses. And then when I had started, I started interning a lot at different film companies, production companies. And actually the, the summer internship I did was at a smaller kind of film distribution company. And there, that when I was working there, I was like, wow, I really like, you know, people that do business affairs. This seems really cool. What is it? And I kind of realized the more and more I started working and interning that business affairs was really made up of finance and lawyers. So it was kind of hard to just do that without one of those two paths. Um, and even just, I, the more I talked to kind of people, I tried to, you know, do informational interviews and a lot of these, these internships was really valuable at the time. Um, and I just felt like I, I kept gravitating more towards the attorneys, whether or not they were still practicing attorneys, you know, they may, they may have been tax lawyers before um, and not, you know, that they had moved into more of kind of a business role, but they still had kind of JDs or that lawyer background. So then I, I really started strongly considering it, but I wanted to first get to California and kind of just work in the, um, and see where I fit in and I guess rule out any sort of creative role. Um, and then it was the same thing. I worked for almost four years before going into law school, but that, you know, it was, again, I worked for a, a digital media company for about two years and that was really great because it was, it was definitely a startup when I start, you know, a very like 20, 30 employees. So I got to work really closely with the, you know, two or three attorneys that they had. And really that was kind of the final straw, like, okay, I really, really like this. I really like working with contracts and this is definitely the, the plan. What was it like going from like being um, creative, uh, wanting to do like production and, you know, like that creative entrepreneur to then like going into law and also like, can you relate it to like the amount, like how many females were getting into law? Like, was that a, how, how much, like how much harder did you have to work um, being a female? Yeah, that, well, I think definitely for, in terms of the, the creative, I actually realized that my personality was, was actually pretty well suited to being an attorney. I have, I used to have a lot of anxiety and kind of be a kind of glass half empty, pessimistic person, you know, worried about everything. And I found that that actually is a great way to be for an attorney because you can (laughs) kind of really focus that into, okay, what's the worst case scenario? How do we avoid that? How do we, um, you know, 
and a lot of times your clients, you know, especially if they are creatives, I've, you know, I've worked with a lot of people in the entertainment space before I went to law school, but I could kind of see them working through these ideas that they had and they're just excited and they're, you know, there's, they think it's like the greatest thing ever and not saying I wouldn't be excited, but I also would have a lot of concerns and just be shocked over and over how they, um, didn't necessarily think of these things. So I was kind of like, okay, maybe I, I do have maybe more of a little bit more like risk averse business, uh, legal mindset. So, um, that it made more sense for me, but, and I, and I felt pretty lucky, um, you know, I, I wasn't sure I looked at a lot of different law schools, but I feel like I actually saw a lot of women, I would say almost 50, 50, at least try and, you know, be an interest in, in applying to law school. Um, but I, you know, I feel I'm hoping that continues to move in that direction. And I don't think that was the case, um, you know, even 10 years ago. And I think a lot of times too, the women that go to law school and maybe even if within law schools, the kind of demographic is more 50, 50, I think as you get five, 10 years, even 20 years out of law school, the women that end up, you know, making partner or staying in these demanding legal careers. Um, I think that's when you really start to see the, the kind of shift or fork in the road, unfortunately. Yeah. Just touching on that. I know I'd say law, you know, there's certain professions where, I'd say growing up, people would be like, oh, if you want to have a family or get married, that would not be something to go into. Um, Did you ever feel, I mean, I don't know your aspect on wanting to have a family and get married, like whichever way is obviously fine, but did you feel kind of pressure or people kind of that stigma when you were applying? I've definitely heard of that. Um, Thankfully for me, I mean, I, I guess it's, I do want a family and kids, but I haven't had that yet. So I've been okay to just, I guess, be selfish a little bit more, but I've watched a lot of, um, you know, friends and colleagues kind of go through that and talk about how it's just, it's, it's different. And I, I once heard that, um, even especially law firms interviewing men, they, you know, like a man that is married is, is seen as like very stable and this is someone who you want. And they kind of like, they have their partner locked down and now they're just going to dive into their work. And, you know, even if they have kids, like, sure, that'll come and go, but it won't um, totally affect this person's life in the way, obviously, if you hire a woman and she is married, I think a lot of people were considering like, okay, well, how many kids does she have? Or, uh, and you know, I'm sure that came up. I know, I don't think now you can ask that you could ever get away with asking that in an interview, but I'm, I think it was probably very, very common, um, for, for women having to, I guess, navigate that. And then I've actually, you know, this is just kind of reflecting over the, the past year of working from home and zoom, zoom fatigue. I mean, you can really see the the difference between my female colleagues and the moms trying to balance everything uh, versus the the dads, I will say. And, you know, I know it's not everyone um, and every situation is different, but that is actually really, really concerning to me going forward and kind of the fallout from COVID and women in the, the legal profession, but also everywhere from what I've heard, sadly. So with entertainment law, um, so I worked as a legal assistant for four years while I was in college, but it was like personal injury law, super fluffy, super easy. Um, <laughs> but I know the firms that I worked for, you know, there was a lot of men and, you know, my boss, he was white, he was older, you know, a lot of the other attorneys were white, older, you know, Yale graduates. Um, so yeah. what's it like in terms of entertainment law? Like, you know, talking about, you know, you're thinking of the future. And I know, um, one of our other episodes, we were discussing like, how as women, we have to do, you know, future planning if we want to have children. What is it like for you and your industry specific? Because entertainment, I mean, you know, you have like the Harvey Weinsteins and the Coppolas and, you know, you have, yes. it's still kind of this male dominated arena you're dealing with. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of women have unfortunately stories where they've kind of gone through that. Um, and whether, you know, it's, it's this blatant me too horrific story. Just, I think a lot of every, all women have experienced it on a subtle level or just little things that, you encounter 
day in, day out, unfortunately. I feel really lucky that um, my current company is actually, so it's within the legal department. I work in-house at a um, production company in Los Angeles, and we have about 14 people in our on our team and 12 of them are women. And I would say half of them are, um, BIPOC. So non-white women. So I feel like I'm, you know, very excited to see this. Uh, but I am very, very, you know, aware that that is not the case at other entertainment companies, as well as, you know, law firms that specialize in entertainment, just from, you know, a lot of the, the, networking events, especially that I went through during law school. And then since that time, um, I went to a, an IP conference to, I guess it was, yeah, it was right before the the kind of world ended and the, <laughs> everything shut down. And it was, you know, predominantly older, very, a lot of significantly older white males and white men. And the, you know, I've become more involved with the group and it's been nice to see them making an effort, you know, to actually address that and, and hopefully not in a, you know, superficial way. And I think, um, I know at my company, we're doing that as well. You know, we work with a lot of outside law firms. So obviously we have a bunch of in-house lawyers, but then we will bring in an employment law firm or litigation law firm for a lot of these issues that we, as like an entertainment studio, we need to like, we need some experts to weigh in on and we're starting to really assess the, um, diversity and inclusion efforts within the firms that we work for. So we want to make sure it's not always the white partners working on our, you know, film and TV matters, which is cool. And I'm, I'm excited and I'm like, we want to have more and more accountability going forward. Um, and I think a lot of companies are trying to figure out how to navigate this world, um, which is good. And we talk about it within, you know, creating content, not just how, you know, who is writing the story and trying to make it authentic by hiring people who actually experience that instead of, um, you know, and not just in front of the camera, but behind the camera, the writers, all, mm-hmm. all of the crew. And I think that I've seen a lot more efforts in that. And I, I hope it continues because it's, you know, especially, you know, talking about women, women are still hugely underrepresented, underrepresented in, you know, as female directors and um, showrunners, studio executives, there, I think are still a handful that people are kind of aware of. So it's, yeah, it's changing, but it's certainly not um, like an eradicated problem. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the like fluff part. Um, My company, we actually just started, there's like a diversity inclusion group that we have at work, which has been really exciting, but they've been hosting these like weekly seminars. Um, So we had this company Catalyst who spoke this week, but she was talking about, you know, companies would hire all these diverse backgrounds and stuff just to check a box. But at the end of the day, it's like, Mm -hmm. what are they doing to make these people feel included and involved when they're actually a part of the company. And she's like, that's what we need to be working on. And she's like, you know, yeah, you can check all these boxes, but like, what is everyday life for these people and how can people be included? And it's like just women, for example, it's like, oh, great. You know, 50% of your workforce is women, but do you have maternity leave? Yeah. Um, you know, are you accepting of this work-life balance? Do you treat your female employees different? And it's just a really interesting take. And I'm excited that my company's um, having these seminars and obviously just any education and more stuff is just so great. Um, But I think this past year, you know, with everything that happened, a lot of companies are looking internally and making these changes, hopefully for the better. Yeah, hopefully for the long-term better. Um, Yes. (laughs) Definitely a lot of work to be done just being, you know, a black woman in the workforce, um, you know, 32 and working, you know, since I was like 16. It's obviously a lot of room for growth and um, not to check a box or just be socially woke because of the times. So, yes. Yeah. That's amazing that your team um, is mostly women. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's been, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very thankful. Um, but I was, I actually, I think I, I mentioned this, the digital media company I worked at, and that was 
Um, definitely, I feel like it kind of soured me on startups for a while just mm. because it was a little, there was a lot of, uh, you know, toxic masculinity. And I remember at that time, you know, it's a startup. So I was involved in HR and office management, a little bit of IT. It was kind of like, yeah, just, you know, pitch in where you can. So in one of the, I was trying to help them fill one of the positions and, you know, I, we got it down to two different candidates and there was one woman who definitely was more qualified and they were actually both women, but one was much more qualified than the other. And I kind of went through and talked to my COO about it. And he just, he seemed kind of uncomfortable and I was like, what is it? And he basically admitted that the, um, overqualified or not overqualified, the more qualified woman was not attractive enough. Like, look, um, and yeah, they, there were a lot of things like that. And then so a lot of the women we did hire, it became like a very, like this whole section just seemed like the sorority section of the company. (laughs) Um, so there, there was a lot of that and that there was also an incident where, um, somehow different people's salaries were accidentally released and, there were um, a couple different women in the same, you know, roles, director level roles um, as men making significantly less. So thankfully I at that time was not of any high level to be on this list, but you know, you heard about it and there were a lot of things and I was pretty young at the time. That was one of my first real jobs after college. Um, and it's only kind of after looking back, you know, how those experiences kind of, I guess, make an impression. That was also where, you know, I had a really great mentor who was very supportive of me going to law school. He was an attorney as well. And we, you know, worked really well together. And I remember when I started looking at law schools, he, I got into one school that I was kind of like, yeah, it's okay. But, you know, I I kind of, I don't know if it's quite as good as where I think I can go. And he was like, oh, but like the campus, it's so beautiful. And like, oh my God, the guys would love you. Like you'd get, you'd crush it there. The men would be all over you. And this is, you know, my boss and you know, like, he was actually like pretty appropriate, but again, I'm like, Oh, what did he mean? And why did he say that? And I was just more offended that, you know, there are so many factors that go into what law school is right for you, but the, like how much attention I'm going to get from men was, was not one of them. And it exactly. very much, yeah. me, you know, question like, And what are your, what is your reason for supporting me? And, you know, things like that, that was, um, an eye opener. And, you know, there's, there was the stigma of like women that just want to get like an MRS degree and go to law school to like actually find a husband or med school. And, you know, in certain, I've heard that as well. And I, I'm just so shocked that there are people that still think that that's what women are doing. Um, and this, you know, this wasn't last year, this is gosh, almost 10 years ago at this point, but, um, yeah, just like very nonchalant things like that, that I'm sure a lot of women went through or have had similar experiences as well. I think any woman that's going to go to med school or law school and Emily, you can test with this because you're a doctor is probably out of their flipping minds because yeah. the work level is, yes. Yeah. Honey, yeah. if you're doing that much work to get a husband, to get, yeah, like, God. Like, right? So much more like easy, more fun, less stressful ways. Um, yeah, but especially, but yeah, that's um, unfortunate. It's just yes. crazy. These like things or stigmas, I guess you could call them that, you know, maybe just that they stick along and like people yeah. just still believe them. Yes. Um, it's like you hear this. I mean, it's even just in our world today, you read something on Instagram or hear something and it's just like, this is the truth now. And this is what it will be forever. And it's like, yeah. no, it's not. Yeah. It's like, how do we get rid of that? Yeah. It's yeah. like, oh my God. Yeah. So outside of, I know you do the entertainment law, but you'd mentioned, um, you know, prior to the pod, prior to us recording that you do some pro bono work. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and kind of how you got into that? Yeah, of course. So this was, um, gosh, almost two years ago now, I was kind of, you know, feeling a little bit more settled at my, my job and I love what I do, but it's, it can be a lot of contracts and I did kind of want to do something, you know, in the pro bono space and feel like I, I'd been, I'd always really liked volunteer work and I wanted to be like, okay, well, I, you know, have this 
legal degree now, I, how can I use it? And again, I, I am in-house, whereas if you're at a big law firm, the, they there are a lot more pro bono opportunities that are kind of easily accessible. My company actually is really great about volunteer events, but less so for attorneys, um, at least within my company, within the big company. But anyway, so I started looking for opportunities and I really wanted to help women. Um, and you know, ideally in Los Angeles where I live. And I found the um, Los Angeles County Bar Association had a domestic violence project. So they basically help um, victims of domestic violence obtain temporary restraining orders. Um, And, uh, you know, I'd say women because it is predominantly women, but not all women. And there are also um, certain cases of kind of elder of elder abuse, people who are in unfortunate situations where they need to obtain a TRO against a son or daughter or caretaker. Um, but that that was really kind of eye-opening and it it was a good experience for me to kind of flex that part of, I guess, being a lawyer that I don't necessarily um, have to to use as much. I mean, I work with clients, but really being in a house, you have kind of one main client and then, you know, lots of different projects that you might be helping said client with. Um, and I certainly didn't have to, you know, I represent clients. I don't do litigation. I'm not in court, you know, advocating for my clients. So this, I really enjoyed this. Um, and thankfully, They've been able to keep it going through uh, the pandemic because, unfortunately, a lot of domestic violence has has skyrocketed. People are unfortunately Mm -hmm. stuck at home in these in these, Mm -hmm. um, you know, terrible environments. And, you know, I feel terrible for the children as well, because we, you know, very, very often they will try to get a move move out order granted. So the, um, and it'll be protecting not just the the victim, but any children that they have living with them. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty, um, harrowing, I guess, to see just the, the amount, the sheer number of, of people who need these every, every day they run it. Um, but yeah, so I've been, been very thankful and it, it was kind of, you know, nice to be able to continue with it. They, they did shut down for a little bit. And right now we've been doing everything remote because most of the court were court was still kind of emergency only, but thankfully they're still going. And I'm very grateful to be a part of that that group. And I I will say again, it's predominantly women, uh, predominantly women attorneys. Um, even though, you know, maybe I, of course that I think victims of domestic violence are generally associated with women, you know, you have like the battered wife image Mm -hmm. in your head. So it does make sense, but it's really cool to see the, the women, you know, and everyone from the attorneys to the legal interns, to the, um, the interpreters and the, the paralegals, I'd say, are predominantly women. So that's so cool. Yeah. What an amazing um, way to just use like your superpower of law and the knowledge because that's, you know, domestic violence is definitely something um, that is a major, major thing. And it's very sad, like you were saying, that with COVID um, and everybody being at home, everything's on the rise. Um, so unfortunate. Yeah. Just touching on kind of the pro bono work, would you say, I mean, you said a lot of females are there. Do you think it's mostly, like have a lot of the females dealt with domestic violence themselves or is it just they want to help these women in these situations because they have, like you said, you know, you have this legal background, you want to help um, and do that or what would you say on, I mean, or do you even know these people's, the people you work with personal stories too? Yeah, I I feel like I, I don't know their personal connection as much um, and I would love to, especially now, being remote, it's harder to kind of get, you know, on the, on the plus side, it's been good because I could actually put in more hours because I can do everything via phone, but on the, you know, downside, I don't really get like the FaceTime and the in-between clients where I can kind of catch up and actually learn more about, um, the people I get to volunteer with. But, um, I'm, I'm just excited that they have been able to keep it going 
for, you know, as long as they have, but also we're able to keep it going through the pandemic because it's like you said, certainly hasn't really slowed down at all. Um, yeah. Um, is there any like advice you would give for maybe somebody going through domestic violence or kind of, if they just feel like they're stuck and they're scared and they don't know what to do, like, what would be like, would you say next steps for them? to get out of that situation. Yeah. I mean, they, um, from what I'm hearing, there are very similar organizations to this one in in other cities, you know, San Francisco, San Diego, they have this, this work as well. And a lot of times, um, a social worker will recommend that they can kind of recommend that the, uh, victim gets the TRO because I think a lot of times people, you know, they might have a police report filed, but then that can kind of be the end of it. Or, um, you know, sometimes the the court will grant an an emergency protective order, but a lot of times those are only in effect for a week. And then the the difference is with the temporary restraining order that would be in fact in effect for a couple weeks, usually, um, you know, up to three weeks. But then you'll have a hearing date and then that will determine whether you can get the um, permanent restraining order granted, which is great. But but it's hard, you know, unfortunately. Unfortunately, a lot of these women may not even have the transportation to get to the courthouse to have this conversation. And then, oh, you have to um, actually serve the um, person, you know, then that process can be kind of scary and daunting, but doesn't necessarily have to be because, you know, it can, there are a lot of options for who actually serves the person and it is, it can't be you. So we, we need never want a situation where the um, victim has to be the one serving this CRO order, court order on, you know, see you at the hearing in a couple of weeks. So you kind of, we do a little of like explaining that. And then we also can, you know, assist. Sometimes you can get the sheriff's office to do it. If if there's, if you just really feel like there's no way, but it's hard. It's like, it's just a complicated, process, it can be difficult to walk through all the steps um, on your own without someone to kind of, and even the paperwork, you know, there's a lot of forms and a lot of things to go through. So I feel, but it, you know, I, I would say kind of just don't give up. And then if you do get to the stage where there is, um, you know, sometimes we have things where someone starts the process, but then for whatever reason, they can't make it to their hearing or um, you know, they, they decided not to go, like they intentionally did not want to go to the hearing because they thought things were going to get better. And that, um, is, is completely okay. You know, we, we, they acknowledge that things happen. Um, and unfortunately that it's, you know, it's very oftentimes like a, a passionate relationship or very, you know, often they are in love with this person. Um, so, you know, these things happen. And I, I, I think that would be one thing if you, if certain women felt like, well, I, I blew my chance because I went through this process before, but then I didn't go to the hearing and, you know, the judge will look at that as she didn't take it seriously or she had her chance. And Mm. that is not, um, the way we look at it, you know, because of exactly like we understand that it can, you know, maybe they have to work or maybe they have to babysit a child. I mean, there's so many things that, that can come up. Um, but it's really just about kind of acknowledging it and moving forward. Um, and then that uh, you can kind of go from there. That's really awesome. So, um, I'm kind of just like I'm reading briefly on um, just some topics that, you know, you mentioned to Adam and things and um, talking. We talked a little bit about like work and your um, work life balance and being a working woman. Um, So in your career, like, I mean, through dating and things, um, it sounds like you were in an uh, interracial uh, relationship. Can you tell us a little bit about that and like what you learned from it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I learned a lot. This I was for almost three years. Um, and it was actually during law school. So I'm, yeah, apologies that, you know, anybody that's dated someone in law school, it is not generally <laughs> a pleasant time in their life. So he had to put up with a lot. Um, and you know, my, I, I felt really lucky, like, you know, my friends and my parents, they were all, you know, they, they were like, 
great. Like this is, you, you know, you have a new boyfriend. Awesome. We love this person, but I have a lot of family members who, um, you know, they, they really only saw this as like, Oh wow, you're dating a black man, you know? And that was, I think very, uh, jarring. And, you know, I, it, again, I didn't really have a lot of these conversations with some of my family members until this, this came up and they, mm-hmm. you know, there was a, one situation where my a cousin came to visit who doesn't live in Los Angeles. And I remember like, we had a great time, my cousin, my boyfriend, and some of my boyfriend's friends and, um, like everyone got along and it was great. And then at the end, my cousin was like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, I was like, Oh, you know, what do you think of him? And my cousin's like, Oh, he's so great. But, um, and I was like, good. Yeah. I, I feel that way too. And he was like, yeah, but you know, he, he's not really black. Um, he's like, he's not really black. And I was just kind of like, well, like, I I mean, great that you like him, but that, you know, definitely seems like a backhanded compliment. And also what is your kind of image of what being black is or what is it to be a black man? And, um, more just so like, you know, we didn't really do a deep dive on that, unfortunately. Um, and I think that this, you know, the past year, I, th- I think a lot of a lot more people are having kind of moments like that and actually trying to do deeper dives on, on like comments like that and where do they come from and not, you know, moving on because it's family or because it's friends or it's uncomfortable. Um, so that, you know, and another thing that kind of, came up. Um, I just felt like I started, um, seeing things differently and, and kind of worrying about my, something happening to my ex that I, I never really thought about before. Um, I remember I watched, um, Fruitville station when I was dating him and I just was, I was, you know, I, at that time I didn't know the story of Oscar Grant or what had happened. So I, I was, you know, again, phenomenal film. So I was just very, uh, moved and upset. And I, I just could see that happening to, um, my, my ex just because, you know, he was a very caring person and it just seemed like something that he could be in the, I guess, quote unquote, wrong place at the wrong time. And some sort of police altercation, occurs not involving him at all. And I think trying to explain that sometimes people, certain people get into the like, Oh, well, you know, you don't, if you're not breaking the law or why, what would you worry? Like, why, what's the problem? Like, you you know, just don't put yourself in that situation. And, um, you know, just talking to him about, you know, conversations about just going into a room and, scanning for who's in your room and, and, you know, just thinking a lot more about what you're wearing and how you act during wearing certain things. Um, and not being able to like run down the street in certain neighborhoods and in this said outfit, um, it was just very, uh, you know, very different than a lot of the previous relationships where, um, you know, I just hadn't really had those conversations with some of my past white boyfriends. And those like unconscious biases, were you able to like, did you ever find yourself like um, being able to use what you learned like in the working world? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, honestly, I feel like the past couple years or really year has really um, given me the kind of tools to talk about it in a better, more effective way. Um, because I was still very, you know, defensive too, at that point, you know, I think white people, there were things that, that we talked about and he would be like, Oh, you can't, you shouldn't really say that. Or like, that's kind of racist. And I would immediately just become so defensive and, and angry because I think, um, you know, I was like, but no, no, no. Like I, I didn't mean it that way. And like, like, how would you take it that way? And just trying to unpack that. Um, and as you know, I'm, I'm still working on it because I think a lot of, you know, white people have this like racism associated with ignorance and, you know, like this is like the people storming the Capitol or there's like this very, um, you know, how could someone think I am racist? I'm educated. I'm this, I have black friends, like whatever it is that white people just like jump to and your just reaction is, is to get angry and defensive. Um, and I see that in, you know, I, I kind of 
thankful for that relationship because luckily, you know, I was in this kind of supportive space to work through of that. It's a lot of that. Um, and now I can see it a lot more clearly when, you know, friends or family or colleagues or just, you know, acquaintances say things or do things that, um, aren't, you know, (laughs) I just don't, don't react the same way. And I don't want them to kind of brush things under the rug the way I would have. Um, and we're, yeah, again, like having, like you said, Emily, these conversations with work too, and talking about how you can kind of, I think just talking about it and, and people, a lot of times were like, no race is uncomfortable. And actually talking about race, um, shows that, that you, you know, you're aware of it. And we, a lot of us maybe grew up in the, the, I don't see color era. And our parents were kind of like, this is the cure. We don't see color. Um, so that again, being like, oh, well, I might have unconscious, you know, biases and actually have like latent racism and where does it come from and trying to like work through it and not, just get so defensive and defending your position um, that I I think more people are trying to like grapple with how to do that. Um, But it's, it's a process and yeah, I think we have a long way to go. Yeah, it's definitely a process and it's definitely a learning, Uh, definitely a process, definitely a learning. Um, And it's funny because, you know, um, I grew up in Oregon, which is predominantly white, um, and I was raised by a white man because I'm adopted. Um, And so for me, it's always interesting kind of hearing the conversations that kind of went on in my household and what my dad thought and versus, you know, now as an adult and uh, dating my partner as a black man, those kind of conversations and that thought process about okay, entering a room and then thinking about like driving in the car with your your partner, those things are so natural for me to think about yeah. without having to really get too much into, you know, uh, a, a hard conversation about things. It's just like, okay, this is a, a road that we're going to have to cross now. And we have to have this conversation because it's important because it's unfortunate. Just we have a lot of work to do in the country as a whole in the world. And so what we have to do. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting, you know, what you said about, I'd say white people becoming defensive and just getting angry. Um, and going back to the, one of the training or seminar thing I attended last week, it was like, you know, this is what this person's telling you. And this is how, what you said, like made them feel. So regardless of what you think, like this, this is what they're telling you and this is what you need to accept and like kind of understand that. And I think, just that's just really hard for some people. Um, and I mean, even myself, like I'm married to Adam, who's black, obviously. Um, but yeah, I think it's, you know, just in your relationship that you were in, it's nice to be able to have these open conversations, but then also, you know, maybe they don't want to talk about it, but it's, you know, we're expecting a kid in July. And so that's been like a lot of conversations and just, fears that I've had bringing just an interracial child into the world and growing up as a white woman. And, you know, what, like, I keep asking Adam, like, what am I going to do? Like, I haven't had these experiences. Am I going to a be able to bond with my child? Am I going to be able to give them, you know, worldly advice? Like, it's just scary and sad. And, um, I hope, you know, with this past year that people keep growing and changing and that it's long-term versus like just what it is right now. Well, congratulations, by the way. Uh, Thanks. (laughs) That's exciting. I think as, you know, as a black woman, the conversation piece, you know, and growing up in Oregon, having um, a lot of friends that are not part of the BIPOC community, um, you know, it's, it's part where it's, you know, asking the questions because we just get tired. Like, you know, answering the questions can be really exhausting. So I don't think when a relationship, it's not so much that people don't want to have the conversations. I think that, you know, you just have to be sensitive to the topic and sensitive to the energy that they're putting out every day, just existing in the world. You know, think about all the stuff that you normally you know, non-people of color have to deal with and we have to deal with those same things. Plus, in addition to that, being a person of color in the world. Um, 
So I think that, you know, I am open to conversations with people. And I think that it's great when people are open to conversations and they're genuine about it. But there's also that kind of education piece. And I obviously can't go into, you know, your house, Stephanie, and have a conversation with your cousin out of the blue without maybe that being that defensive piece. So I think the work really needs to come from within families as a whole. And we've talked a lot on the committed within the committed collective about starting early with education and, you know, moving that way forward. I think that's why these topics are so great. And I'm pretty sure all of us here um, have have in some way had some kind of conversation about, you know, racism, um, unconscious biases, uh, being in inner uh, racial relationships. Um, you know, like I've even had to have the conversation like with my in-laws family, like that side of the family that like, Hey, like this is now no longer a predominantly white family. Like you need to recognize that like I may have grown up and, you know, like with predominantly white family and in a predominantly white area. And, you know, like, yes, Asians are the uh, privileged, considered the privileged minority, but at the same time, you're calling me a minority. So we're still a minority and you need to like be able to remember that. So I think it's like good for us to have these conversations and for other people like who are listening to hear them because somebody out there somewhere is thinking the same thing, like that you were just saying, Emily, and like, you know, like worried that I, you know, am I going to be able to be as like, you know, understanding as, as, uh, maybe somebody in, uh, in the BIPOC community will be, but, um, I do want to say I, I will be because <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's just, don't crazy. worry. Like, I will um, let you know. I'll let you know <laughs> if I can help you with anything. Don't worry. Yes. <laughs> I've already like given her that. full education about hair. So that was her first lesson. Yes. Okay. Ready. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just, I don't know, going back to what Stephanie said, just, you know, getting worried when like Adam leaves and goes to do something. And like over the weekend, I realized my tags on my car expired. Cause I guess when I changed my name and my address, they don't change your registration address. So it got sent. Right. Anyways, long story short, but we were going out, um, and, uh, we were going to take my car and then, cause I was like, Oh, I don't really want to drive. Um, just cause my things expired cause it was nighttime and I was just tired. But then Adam's just like, well, you need to drive. And it's just one of those things like he would rather if we if we get pulled over for me having expired tags, like I need to be the one driving. And it's just like, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Like just having these conversations and just like, what do we do if we get pulled over together? And I think Dusty, you and me, like, uh, I think last year sometime was like, you need to have like this conversation with Adam and just, it's just been eye opening. And I think it's just scary now going to bring like a little human into the world. And I feel like I'm going to be worried all the time. I think you just are as a mom anyways, but, um, yeah, I think, you know, like Kate said, it's just so good to be having these conversations and talking to people and what would you do and how can we make this better for everybody? So I think talking about it is really important. It's like talking about like all the Asian hate crimes that are going on right now. Yeah, absolutely. So the more we talk about it, the more we bring up these stories and these like personal stories, like Emily, I think that's like an amazing story and like that. I'm really happy that you had like a safe space to share that. But like, I think the more we talk about it and the more um, it's like put out there, the more comfortable people are going to get like being like, okay, like you're right. This isn't right. And like recognizing that, it, that it's a big issue. Yeah. And I think a lot of people just don't like, wouldn't even realize that that's like a conversation me and my husband are having about who's going to drive home because we might get pulled over because I have expired tags. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, white people don't have to think about that. (laughs) So yeah, it's just interesting. I always encourage everyone and white privilege is a thing. It's a thing. And it's a very large set of rose colored glasses. And I I get it. Um, You know, even being raised by a white male, you know, my dad was like technically what was the top of the food chain. He was a white male, you know, lived in a suburb, owned his own home. Um, I still have, you know, sometimes I don't see things, you know, 
I see things a little bit tinted. Um, you know, my partner is, um, you know, a black male and he comes from immigrant family and we compare all the time in terms of being raised. There's just some things where I'm just like, Oh dang, like you really had to go through that through your neighborhood. But had I been raised by a black man, you know, a single black father, instead of a single white father, I probably could have very well had the same experiences. Um, so I understand that, you know, white privilege and, you know, just those workload classes is very real. But I always just encourage people when they do kind of look at the news or look hear a story, like the things we're discussing, they really just kind of try to put themselves in the shoes of a black woman or a black man or any minority, any person of color. You know, Kate is Asian and there's a lot of Asian hate crimes going on right now. And I think it's something that really needs to be brought up and discussed more. Um, and people shouldn't be turning a blind eye to all these racially um ridiculously horrible hate crimes going on. Um, but put yourself in the shoes. You're watching it, you're hearing it on the news, you see it on social media, try to put yourself in that person's shoes. Um, and in terms of, you know, parenting, you know, I don't have any children yet, but this is something I've thought about basically since, you know, I hit to the point where I'm like, okay, I, I guess I can get pregnant. I have to think about a child. So I have to think about, you know, okay. So I'm like, you know, my doctor's telling me, okay, like you're at the age you can, you probably could have a baby now. I'm like, dang, well, I have to start thinking about that person. Um, and if it's going to be a boy or a girl and how the world is going to see and treat that person. Um, and it is difficult, but, and it's scary, of course, just being a parent. But again, I think it's all about that mindset again, like, how is the world going to see this person putting yourself in those shoes? So that's what I always encourage people to do and to have those conversations. And I always say, you know, um, when it comes to talking about race, it's not a problem unless you are racist. And I firmly stand by that. And, you know, there are different levels and forms of racist. We have people who are like storming the Capitol, neo-Nazis with the freaking Confederate flag and wearing, you know, Holocaust like pride shirts. Um, but then we also have racists that it comes in all those little waves of microaggression. And growing up in Oregon, you know, people think that Oregon, especially Portland, where I live, is a very, you know, liberal and like woke city. It's really not. It's not. You have people saying that who are not people of color. And um, I always say, you know, to me, I think microaggressive racism, the little BS bullshit I have to deal with on a regular basis, I would rather just have you come in your KKK wardrobe in my yeah. face. So I know, okay, you say yeah. in your lane, I say in my lane. <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, but I love different levels of racism. People need to understand that as well. And it's not just black people. It's not just Asians. There's a whole set of, you know, different religions and, um, communities and people that there's just so much hate in the world that people really just need to be more mindful of and having those conversations. If you really don't want to be a racist. Yeah, agreed. And I, yeah, I think that's a lot of, you know, maybe baby, baby boomers or older generations are so, um, you know, they, they really maybe thought that this like over KKK level type of racism had, um, you know, not fully disappeared, but we had evolved to where it wasn't so much of a, a pressing issue. And, um, and I think, yeah, like we, this, uh, the whole, I don't see color and like, people not seeing how problematic that is. And I think the younger generations are, are like realize how absurd that is, but um, you know, and I get like the, the idea behind it that like maybe some of our parents um, latched onto this, like everyone's equal. I don't see your difference, you know, your, your skin color um, as something making you different than, than me. But the problem is like the system in the world with mm -hmm. that we live in still treats people very differently, unfortunately, based on the way you look um, in a lot of different respects and gender. Um, but that, and that's, that's the problem by, you know, just because you, you don't have that mindset or you're not acknowledging it, um, doesn't mean it's, it's okay resolved, um, and you're not affected or you don't, you shouldn't care about it. Um, and that, yeah, I think like, like you said, a lot of the, the kind of little, the little, um, unconscious bias, the microaggressions that, um, people are only now really starting to, to call out and be aware of, um, and, and figure out why, you know, why they are so problematic are, are, are more concerning than, um, the kind of just crazy, something we'd all agree like, oh, wow. Yeah. That, that guy's 
or that woman, that person, they're, they're crazy. They're so racist. Like that's, that's like, we're all kind of on the same page. Um, I think, yeah, the, the kind of uncomfortable, awkward conversations go into where some, some people are just still confused about why it was a problem or, or they're, yes, again, so focused on the intent versus impact, um, which was hard for me at times too, in the past. Um, but yeah. It's, it's a process where, um, yeah, hopefully, but I, I, I don't know. I'm, I do have hopes for kids younger, even than I am. Um, and don't, I'm an elder millennial, but I <laughs> do have like better, like more hopes for, um, younger generations. But I do also worry because I have been in, you know, so-called liberal bubbles or just parts of the country for the past 15 years where, um, it is a lot easier to maybe be yourself or find people who I, you know, you connect with more so than, you know, where I grew up. I mean, I still think it's not necessarily as progressive or evolved that I would like to think it is. Um, but hopefully we're again, still moving in the right direction at least. Well, Stephanie, it's been so great to have you on the podcast. Um, Generally, the boys end with a question of the week. Um, so this week's question is, if you could have dinner with any women, woman in history, living or not, who would it be? Ooh, um, okay, I have, I have two. I have okay. um, dead and alive. For um, alive, I would say... Uh, Pamela Adlin. She's the um, writer and creator of Better Things on, uh, it's an FX show, but it's now on Hulu and she's just phenomenal. Highly recommend the the show. Um, And she's just so funny and I would love to have a meal with her, but um, dead, I would probably say RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah, I I mean, you know, it was very sad um, that she's no longer with us, but just like her entire life crusading for, you know, obviously women's rights, but um, so many people um, and that would be just an amazing opportunity. Yeah. Kate, what about you? This was a really hard one because I wanted to be, um, like fun and hip and say Beyonce because (laughs) (laughs) like I mean from a product like um I I do production here in Michigan Stephanie and so where do you live um so I'm in Novi but I do it out of Detroit um, in like the Oakland County area and Ann Arbor and I work with like a couple video guys and we produce like for small businesses and we've done like stuff for like um you know like music videos and things like but like just like watching like all the work that Beyonce does and like puts into her like into her shows. She's yeah. hiring all black staff. Like she's just she's pretty she's pretty phenomenal. So um so that was one. But then I was like, no, I can't. I mean I can't <laughs> say that one, but I have to say like um I would have to say um I thought about it and Joan of Arc. Ooh, mm, that's, that's a good, really one. good one. Yeah. She was like a national heroine of France. Yeah. The French army to victory over England. Just and like got zero credit for it until <laughs> what, like, I mean, 500 years later, I think. Yeah. Like, yes. I don't know. We might have to fact check that one. <laughs> yeah. so it's like 500 years later, then everyone was like, yeah, she's amazing. Um, mine, it's pretty easy. It's like hands down. And I seriously considered like bum rushing the stage, but I'm sure uh, Secret Service would have shot my ass. Uh, Michelle <laughs> Obama, uh, she was here and I saw yes. her and I was just like, oh my God, I just literally want to run up and hug her. Um, I for sure would have got shot and arrested, but she is amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, if any of you have read Becoming, you know, and know anything about her story, uh, she's just a phenomenal woman and, you know, she's funny. Um, she's, you know, well-dressed, she's well-spoken. She's just eloquent. Um, yeah, I would love to have dinner with her. It's a tie between her and Issa Rae. 
Oh, yeah. Um, both yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, Issa Rae, like, it's very close tie with Michelle because Issa Rae is just, she's just like my spirit animal. I just love her. She's funny. <laughs> she's um, awkward, but she owns it. And I see a lot of myself in her in terms of just, you know, being who you are and embracing that as a wonderful Black woman. Um, we both have natural hair, um, which I know some people look at and they're just like, oh, you know. But yeah, Michelle Obama and Issa Rae, definitely my two. Um, and oddly enough, both are like my boyfriend's crushes. So if I ever did meet <laughs> yes. them, he'd probably be like, can you get a phone number for me? I'm like, okay, back up, slow down. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't blame him. We fight over, you know, Issa Rae and Mich- we fight over Issa Rae and Michelle Obama. It's like, okay, well, if I actually got to meet one of them, like I would not be thinking about you. So. <laughs> oh my gosh, but they're amazing, both of them. So Emily, who is your pick? So it's funny because I think Adam at the beginning of February for Black History Month was like, oh, you know what? Black person has been like inspirational for you for your childhood. And so I put Oprah and I remember debating Mm -hmm. with Adam because I was like, this is probably so cliche for, you know, me as this white girl. But I watched her growing up like my mom was obsessed with Oprah we watched Oprah every day at four like during my childhood like I would not go to like after school play dates to come home and watch Oprah (laughs) and I think she's just been she's lived like such an incredible life and is such an inspirational person Mm -hmm. and woman um and I feel like I could learn so much from her and I think it'd be so cool to sit down a and talk about I mean she was in the entertainment world like for years now and just how that's evolved and being just a black woman on TV and, you know, in the media and how I feel like she, I mean, obviously I don't know her, but I feel like she has stayed true to her authentic self through Mm -hmm. all of this. Um, whereas, uh, I've seen stuff. Oh my gosh. Why am I forgetting his name? Uh, Okay, anyways, can't remember his name, but he, you know, was a famous Black athlete, and it was just, like, he kind of got warped into, like, the white male persona and, like, the things that they would, you know, display with him on TV, and I feel like Oprah really stayed her authentic Black female self, and I think she's just a boss, and I would love to have dinner with her, and I want to be on her show so bad, so that's amazing. I know. I think they're great picks. I don't know. Okay. I'm, I'm there with you with Beyonce. You know, I'm not the yeah. biggest Beyonce. I'm not a part of the Bayhive. Like I'm definitely not the biggest Beyonce fan, but, um, you know, I saw black is King and I wanted to like watch it every day. Michael was just like, can you please turn this off? I can't watch this again. But I thought it was just back and like the totally supportive of her and like, is just like, Nope, you've got this. Like she's like, she's so great. I felt that way about the the Coachella documentary. Like I was just mm, like, yeah. this woman is the like epitome of dedication. How much production really went into all of that, and yes. she did like because I was like obsessed with it, so I like wanted to know from like a production back of the scenes. Of course. And they were saying that she did like eighty to ninety percent of all of it. Like she oh. was choreographing it on her own. She was like hiring on her own. She was doing like all the staging and the lighting and everything. Like yeah. not to make you jealous, but Adam and I were there at Coachella and soccer. <gasps> oh, <laughs> I watched the live stream, but oh my God, that's like, that's amazing. It's funny because that was the first time we've been to Coachella and it was like amazing performers. And now we're like I don't think like any Coachella, well, now, I mean, it's COVID life, but we were just like, I don't think we'd ever go back. We're like, I don't think anything could top like the weekend and the performers and stuff that we saw. Right. Yeah. It's like so funny. Well, shout out to Beyonce and the Bay Hive because (laughs) we all, we real recognize is real and we we see you queen. So shout out to Beyonce. But I think that we all had some amazing uh, picks for women. Um, it just kind of yeah. a, a good mix. It just kind of shows, you know, how many phenomenal women that we have been blessed to know and just see their lives, you know, in this world and how paved the way for us because. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll end kind of here. I would say, you know, action items, final thoughts. Um, you guys can disagree if I'm wrong, but I'd say a lot of what I got out of the podcast today is just having conversations communicating with people um, and just having those tough conversations and being authentic, being transparent. Um, I know that's definitely something I've been working on and will 
definitely put forth and consciously do it this week. So that's going to be my action item of the week. Yeah, I agree. Just keep talking, keep having those conversations, share it on your platforms, right? Like everybody, you know, like we don't have to have millions of followers, but you know, if you share it on one platform, someone else, it might resonate with someone else. And then that someone else is going to go and share that. And then it's just going to keep trickling. Um, action items for the week for me, um, just continue to be authentic, just to continue to be authentic and celebrating um, the women in my circle that I'm blessed to know and that are super talented and um, just are their authentic selves as well. And just, you know, um, really admiring and being proud of the things that we have accomplished. You know, um, Emily's growing a human. She's a doctor. She's a great wife, a great friend. Uh, you know, Kate is multi-talented in so many things, just a complete boss. And now knowing Stephanie, you're just an amazing <laughs> attorney and uh, honored to have you here. So yeah, those are my action times of the week. Just continue to be authentic and encouraging the authentic woman in my circle. So, yeah. I love that. So you can end it, Stephanie, with action items of the week. I, I feel like I'm uh, jumping off of destinies, but yeah, really just in the in the women, just checking on women. Um, you know, one thing with COVID, I feel like it, it, we got to a point where like, you know, people say it's okay to not be okay. But I feel like we all like really felt that. And it was, you know, I, I will, it will be interesting to see when things go back to normal. Um, if that like, yeah, okay, how are you? I'm good. I'm just so busy. Like everything's great. So busy, so busy. Like that's, I feel like what we all said, anybody who's working and then it just kind of, this past year like everyone whether you are still working whether you you know your life totally was upheaved from whatever COVID unfortunately brought um I hope that that kind of continues on um especially for women because as we've said so many women are overworked and just stressed and not getting enough sleep and just mentally probably not doing as great as they could be. So I'm going to try to check in um, and, and, you know, really just how are you below surface level um, with some people that I don't necessarily talk to as much. Well, that's awesome. Thank you again for joining us. This was an awesome conversation and everybody get out there and celebrate women because Women's Month is almost over, but you should celebrate us all year. Every two minutes, 40 women are victims of domestic violence. If you or someone you know needs help now, call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE for assistance and guidance or visit thehotline.org for more information and help. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you would like to learn more about the Committed Collective or any of the initiatives that we're supporting currently, please connect with us at the underscore Committed Collective on Instagram or on Facebook. If you'd like to ask any follow-up questions of today's host or guest about our conversation, feel free to email us at info at thecommittedcollective.org. Be sure to also subscribe to the podcast so you can stay up to date on our topics, information, and other events. If you'd like to join the collective, you can follow us on Instagram and join us on our Slack community. Remember, you can take an active role in your sphere of influence and champion change now.